You've heard me talk about vital nutrients. They've developed BCQ, a powerful herbal and proteolytic formula that supports a healthy inflammatory response. The nutrients in this distinctive formula also support gastrointestinal function and help maintain healthy connective tissue. BCQ combines boswellia and curcumin with quercetin, a potent flavonoid, and bromelain, a proteolytic enzyme for a healthy inflammatory response in joints, sinus, and the digestive tract. For more information and to order, go to vitalnutrients.co. That's vitalnutrients.co. Vital Nutrients has been known for nearly 30 years for their clean and innovative formulations, utilizing peer-reviewed research, bioavailable, and bioactive ingredients in therapeutic doses. I take them and use them in my practice. Just go to vitalnutrients.co and check them out. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. We're going to take a, a little bit of a side trip into the world of psychology on today's podcast. After all, uh, you know, it's not about uh, just every morsel of food you put in your plate or every uh, vitamin and supplement you take or uh, endless exercise. Uh, there is certainly a very, very important component to overall health and well-being uh, when it comes to the mind. And a recent book really uh, caught my attention, really resonated for me. Uh, the book title says it beautifully, Nervous Energy. The subtitle is Harness the Power of Your Anxiety. Interesting proposition is that anxiety can sometimes drive achievement. I know that's the case for me. Uh, I sometimes play chicken with deadlines and with all kinds of uh, tasks that I set before me, uh, and I harness my worry and anxiety to get things done. Uh, but sometimes that strategy doesn't really work out well because it can cause a state of chronic anxiety, and we know that's bad for you. Today's guest is the author of this great book. She's Dr. Chloe Carmichael. Dr. Chloe graduated with honors from Columbia University. I went there too, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Chloe, did, when did you go to Columbia? Uh, well, I let's see. I graduated in 06. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that just makes me feel awful because I graduated in 1975. Okay, but we're... Well, I, I didn't finish college till I was 29, so oh. don't don't let the year fool you. Okay, so you, you were kind of the exceptional student there at uh, Columbia. Uh, but we have that in common. She also has a, a doctorate uh, from Long Island University, or PhD, and her private practice focuses on stress management, relationship issues, self-esteem, and coaching, but with a particular focus on uh, what she terms in her book high-functioning individuals, you know, not necessarily people who are uh, criminally insane or have been remanded to uh, psychotherapy because uh, you know it's a condition of their parole uh, or that uh, they're... Uh, uh, have been admitted to a psych ward. Uh, it's often people who you know would not be deemed uh, suffering from severe uh, panic disorder or depression, but just people trying to optimize. Maybe they're finding that uh, they're they're reaching some uh, stumbling blocks in their uh, efforts to improve their their personal lives, their professional lives. That's her. That's in her wheelhouse. Uh, she's appeared uh, all over the media, and uh, she is. 
an inveterate New Yorker. So, uh, man, stress capital USA, right? Uh, so, uh, so tell us a little bit about uh, what got you into the book, because I, I have a feeling and I'm reading in the book. I don't think there's it's, uh, you know, uh, something that's concealed is that you yourself uh, have been driven by nervous energy. And in your personal uh, and professional efforts, uh, you've sought to tame it uh, to your advantage. So tell us about that. Yes, definitely. I have some nervous energy. I guess you could say I literally wrote the book about it. Um, and, and I think for me, it was, it was really a wonderful shift when I, you know, kind of came to realize that having all that extra energy, um, to be honest, I, I think it was a little probably awkward for me as a teenager. Um, and then somehow, to be honest, I think really through therapy, um, really getting to know myself through therapy and mindfulness and through getting a PhD in clinical psychology, um, you know, this deep interest in yoga that I've had for a long time, somehow it all just synergized around this concept that having all this extra energy can be an absolute gift. And, you know, I think it actually really is how I how I got my PhD, how I wrote a book, how I built a business. I don't think I could have done those things without it. Well, you know, it's it's clear, though, that society reinforces uh, OCD tendencies, obsessive compulsive tendencies. Uh, and we want that in, in a pilot or an accountant or an attorney or a doctor or a, a psychologist. You know, we want uh, people to be detail oriented and to be uh, scholarly and uh, have the ability to uh, get through very, very tough uh, academic programs. Uh, as you did, you know, you, you hold a, a doctorate from a major university and you also graduated with honors from Columbia. Uh, so how can that sometimes turn maladaptive for people? Sure. Well, that's a really interesting question, Ron. How does it turn maladaptive? Um, I I truly could talk all day about that. So yeah. you'll have to rein me in. But I, I think that for many of us, maybe um, what started off as, as actually a good habit of, you know, maybe double checking things or holding ourselves to a high standard, um, we, we almost got a little bit overboard, a little bit haywire, which to be honest, I think might have to do with the developmental trajectory of the executive lobe. Because I think maybe as teenagers, before we had a fully formed executive lobe, mm -hmm. maybe we really did have to, you know, we, we were only able to really be successful through kind of, um, you know, blunt techniques, you know, what, what, what is actually haywire and overkill for a fully grown mature adult person. But we, I think we can carry with us some of those old um, techniques that maybe served us at, you know, one point, but now we, we want to change gears. Um, I think also high functioning people tend to naturally rise in the ranks. So while it may have been practical for a high schooler to double check every single problem on a homework assignment, and that was the pathway to success, once that same person becomes, you know, vice president of accounting, they obviously can't literally double check every figure that ever goes out. Um, so we, I think we just need to uh, change and develop our strategies over time. You know, I actually think that sometimes these traits, which are so adaptive in early life, become maladaptive later because uh, I meet many patients, you know, with various uh, physical maladies where there's an emotional component uh, where 
the profile might be uh, a young woman who's you know brilliant in high school, gets into the best college, then gets in the best graduate program in business and gets to a very, very high level, you know, where they're managing uh, billions of dollars uh, of uh, fund transactions in an investment uh, house, uh, or maybe they're working as a physician at a very, very high level, uh, you know, head of a department at a major uh, university hospital, or, or maybe in a law firm, you know, as you mentioned, you know, like uh, uh, an associate in a high pressure law firm. Um and it it actually becomes uh, it's almost like they're a guided missile which self destructs. They're so perfectionistic. They're so driven. They're so uh, anxious to feel validated by their accomplishments that uh, it has a devastating effect on them. You know, I think what can also happen again is there are certain skills which are actually adaptive and good coping skills. Which, if we actually get too good at them, they can they can almost uh, you know become vulnerabilities. For example, compartmentalization, right? Basically, the idea to you know kind of put your feelings aside mm-hmm. sometimes um, in order to go forth and do what needs to be done. That we is we do a that as a lot that, a lot as doctors, you know, for sure. Yeah, of, of course. And there are many people who need to learn that skill better. <laughs> um, but the thing is, is that if we get too good at compartmentalizing to the point where we're putting our thoughts on the shelf to the point where we don't even realize what we're doing, right? So instead of saying, well, my spouse is irritating me, but I'm going to choose not to take the bait, you know, and, and, you know, just focus on something else instead versus when we don't even realize that that person is irritating us till we find ourselves snapping or, you know, having a outburst and we're like, okay, I admit it. I was, my, my frustration was building and I just didn't even realize that. Um, that's when our quote coping skill, which is a good thing on a certain level of compartmentalization can turn into a form of, you know, denial or a lack of awareness, ironically, from getting too good at those skills. So I'm still thinking about that question you asked, Ron, of how does that develop in people? And I think that's an interesting question. Well, it's sometimes uh, sometimes people use, I think, their anxiety uh, to drive themselves towards uh, perfectionism. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. they, 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 they feel like need to motivate themselves with worry or fear of failure. Uh, so they put themselves sometimes in ever more daunting circumstances with, uh, you know, more and more crushing deadlines uh, to see if they can surmount that, you know, that using uh, anxiety is kind of a, a propulsive mechanism. Hmm. You know, well, some some high functioning people do, I think, certainly not all of them. But um, I think you're right that there is something about a high functioning person's ability to kind of pull a rabbit out of a hat, right to to kind of do the impossible that might lead them to, for example, not study for a test until the night before, because it's kind of a thrill to be able to pull an all nighter and ace it while everybody else, you know, had to study for such a long time. But that skill, again, is only a skill until, you know, you're a college senior who thinks he can pull that with his senior thesis, and it's not going to work, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, life is not a- multiple choice questions, uh, or, you know, or a, a short essay on an exam. 
Right. But I, to your point, I, I do think that there is something about the thrill of it for some high functioning people that there's an adrenaline rush almost that can come with, with seeking out um, a new level of being tested by fire and their skills, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I, I fit that uh, description to some extent. <laughs> I have undertaken some things that, uh, you know, maybe I was a little over my head, but, you know, I use that to, to push my push my limits. But uh, so uh, you you talk about a variety of practical techniques. Uh, I think there are nine of them uh, that you can use with, to help individuals uh, better harness the power of their anxiety to, to utilize and channel their, their nervous energy. And what's interesting to me is that the predicate of all of this is a form of mindfulness, and I think that that speaks to your uh, background, you know, not just in traditional psychology, but also uh, your work as a yoga instructor uh, and your personal explanation, uh, exploration of meditation and mindfulness. You are so right, Ron. That is so true. Um, it, there, it is absolutely the reason why the first technique is a mindfulness technique. Uh, but I always have to say, I want to warn people that, you know, mindfulness does not equal new age woo-woo stuff. So yeah. in case you may have right. any listeners who hear mindfulness and they think, oh, you know, um, which is a term I'll admit that it's been so co-opted and diluted and, you know, used by pop psychology that it's almost hard to even know what it is anymore. But you are correct, Ron, that it, it is my background um, in yoga, where I've been studying mindfulness for many, many years before I even decided to be a psychologist, uh, that I think prompted me to probably take that approach. But I think as well, what's so interesting to me is that the world of psychology, which is, of course, now really embracing mindfulness, is finding the same results that Buddhists have been describing about mindfulness, you know, for thousands of years. Um, but yes, it's you're you're correct that I do think it's important to take a mindful observation approach of the anxiety before we start willy nilly introducing an intervention, because some anxiety is about needing to learn how to focus your energy and go in on a fight or flight situation. Sometimes it's about going in for the fight. And sometimes the anxiety is about needing to learn how to process your energy after the fight, right? Um, and so we really want to take a mindful observation of the anxiety and learn how to do that even in an anxious state um, so that we can choose a good intervention. So run... Um, a plus to you for having truly <laughs> read my book so carefully. I am truly flattered. No, no yeah, I mean, I, I really found it very compelling. But, you know, lest our listeners worry that this book is merely a Trojan horse uh, with a central message, you know, just meditate, you know, and chant, uh, you know, a mantra. Uh, it's a lot deeper than that. But it, it's interesting, you know, perhaps we can substitute for meditation or mindfulness the word metacognition. Uh, which is kind of a, a more uh, neutral word uh, with less in the way of uh, perhaps negative connotations. What is metacognition and how does that help us uh, deal with our uh, anxieties and our emotions? That is one of my favorite sections of the book. It's called, Psst, what is mindfulness? Psst, it's metacognition. <laughs> um, yeah, so my, metacognition comes from that 
the, the Greek meta, which means, you know, overall, mm-hmm. and cognition, which of course is thinking. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's your overall picture of your thinking, which is, you know, such a valuable thing to be able to have. And I know many people would say, well, why would I need any indicators about what I'm thinking? Like, I'm thinking it, mm-hmm. I know it, yeah. um, which makes sense at first until you ask yourself if you've ever, you know, as I have, I'm sorry to say, um, caught myself snapping at a deli clerk and then only then realized, oh, I must be stressed out. I mm-hmm. must be yeah. hungry. I must yeah. be having a bad yeah. day. Because mm-hmm. high-functioning people, I think, can actually get so lost in a thought stream and, and so absorbed in it that we can lose sight of a little bit of the broader picture and all the factors in our busy lives you know, that are shaping mm-hmm. what's going on in our heads. It's kind of like uh, taking your internal temperature, uh, but I've also, you know, you've used the analogy, it's often used in meditation, is that your, your thoughts and emotions are sort of like passing clouds in the sky. And, you know, in a mindful state, you observe them. You don't necessarily engage with them. In effect, they're not real uh, in the sense that you know, they're generated by your mind and they, you know, some of them actually may be emanations of your limbic system, you know, which have to do, you know, it's the emotional center. So true. So true. And just being able to have the ability to observe yourself, I think is what saves people from, you know, having that shortness of breath and going down the panic attack spiral to having a moment of insight where they say, wow, I just really caught my breath there by some thought I just had. And that actually made me catch my breath. And it will, you know, kind of cause them to pause and go deeper about what they were thinking about. And I'm not saying, of course, that every panic attack is actually somebody, you know, who should have just only caught their breath. Uh, That's just an example. But I have found that by building those mindfulness skills, people then know which of the other tools in their toolbox they should use. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also make the point that for some people, uh, worrying becomes their default comfort zone, uh, which is an interesting concept that is that uh, people sometimes, and I've heard it analogized to prayer, you know, you're, you're spending time praying at the altar of worry. Uh, and you feel that, you know, the more you spend, it's almost a, a superstitious belief that if you do that enough hours of the day, these bad things that you're worrying about will not befall you. Uh, that's an erroneous belief, but it, it actually, it just becomes a habit. Well, yes, I think what's so seductive about it, though, is that there actually is a grain of truth, believe it or not, um, to the idea that if you do spend, you know, a lot of time worrying, or at least some time worrying, right, where's the tipping point, you know, we don't mm-hmm. know exactly, but a certain amount of worry um, is actually helpful. A person with no worries, yep. you know, um, wouldn't think ahead, so to speak. Um, and there is, a, you know, you may also be familiar with defensive pessimism, but in case your listeners aren't familiar with it, defensive pessimism is when we deliberately think think the worst and assume the worst as a defense against mm-hmm. disappointment so that if things go well, you know, we we feel like we're overprepared. And I think that's, again, why being the proverbial worrywart is sort of 
soothing to some people, ironically soothing, because they feel like nothing is going to take them by surprise, or mm. it may be even like a point of pride of, you know, self-discipline gone haywire, or not feeling that they have permission to have fun, you know, it could be so many underlying reasons. But the worry time technique just, you know, kind of guides people to find a time in their calendar and can be 15 minutes mm -hmm. a day or an hour a week, everyone's going to have a different flow. Oh. And then whenever you find yourself worrying, you just put the technique, or I'm sorry, you, you just put the item into that calendar event details. And then you can go to the event, the calendar event mm -hmm. at that appointed time, and give those events your undivided attention, which helps people's minds to let go in their day to day life. Because otherwise, what I found is that the people who were, you know, worrying themselves to death mm -hmm. were afraid to stop worrying because they knew that on a yeah. certain level, all that worrying, you know, was leading to certain things getting accomplished. And so yes. the worry time technique, you know, which um, I, is, is, you know, by the way, I think it's been in psychology for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a great technique. And I was, you know, really excited to include it. Yeah, it, it, there's actually, uh, there's a parallel in folklore, which is uh, uh, a South American uh, habit of using what are called worry dolls. And what they're, it's like a little packet. It's very cute. These little mannequins. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they, they're sold mm. in Latin American countries uh, where, you know, these little, you open the packet and these little dolls come out and you, you say a worry to each doll. And then you put the dog, then you, you close the packet and they work on it. <laughs> and you're thereby. You're, so that's a little bit like your, the measure, you know, you're suggesting. That's one of your, uh, nine measures for, uh, harnessing well, the power of anxiety. But, you know, so yes I've actually, no. I've actually recommended that. Yes, I, I think that the, it has a lot of overlap, and I love the idea of the worry dolls, and I can see why you connected that one more, especially with prayer. Um, but I think, you know, neurologically, the reason why worry time gives people something different is because the executive lobe knows that the event has, the, you know, the, the worry has been deposited into a calendar event, and there's a time and a place when the brain is going to be able to return to mm -hmm. it. And that's what lets the brain really just settle itself down because it doesn't feel like it has to keep pinging you with it yeah so you know a, put it on a shelf assign it a place or you know put your mm -hmm. worry dolls away uh and mm -hmm. uh and sleep on it uh in effect so th these mm -hmm. are some of the techniques okay so there's a lot more to this uh we're going to pause now because uh, we divide our podcast into two parts um the book is uh, great it's uh getting all kinds of fantastic reviews uh, nice review from Dr. Deepak Chopra. Uh, great review from uh, Dr. Daniel Amen, who's been a guest here. He says, Nervous Energy is a wonderful book. Dr. Chloe has an incredibly warm and engaging style. Indeed, you do. That makes complex concepts feel simple and immediately useful. Vivid stories about how she's used the technique in her own life, both personally and professionally, add a layer of vulnerability. And you do open up that makes the book come alive. This is a very helpful book and a must read. So very nice uh, review from Dr. Amen, one of our favorite guests here on Intelligent Medicine. Uh, we'll be back with more Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety by Dr. Chloe Carmichael. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is Intelligent Medicine.